opening God's Word for us this morning is Anthony Kidd. Anthony is the uh, preaching pastor at Community of Faith Bible Church in Southgate. He is also on the faculty of Los Angeles Bible Training School. Uh, and I just have to say as an aside, uh, I invited Anthony to come up. I said, just stand off to the side while I introduce you. I would, I would ask that of Eric Tonis when I was working at Taylor University. I said, just come up, and as I introduce you, stand off to the side. And Eric would, like, right there and put his chin <laughs> right there. So I, I, I appreciate the... Uh... No, you're not following script now, brother. <laughs> Along with his wife, Sherry, Anthony has five children, and we are pleased to have him in the Grace Pulpit this morning. Brother, welcome. <laughs> Well, good morning. It is uh, my delight to be with you all this morning. Um, I bring you greetings from Community of Faith Bible Church in Southgate, and I want to say especially uh, uh, express gratitude to the elders of uh, this church, uh, particularly Dr. Tanez. Uh, Dr. Tanez and myself were uh, together about four or five years ago at a men's um, uh, conference, and uh, he preached and I preached there, and our our hearts were knit together. We just had mutual appreciation for each other. And as I told the first service, I begged him to be my friend. And, um, and here I am. That's really the, the, the short end of it. But he has come over to Community of Faith once and preached for one of our anniversaries. And our congregation just really appreciated him and his ministry and God's word. And uh, so here I am. Uh, my understanding is that you all don't have guest preachers very often. And uh, so I probably shouldn't have been told that early this morning because it just <laughs> adds the pressure. So I'm, e- I'm either going to do well for the guys that come after me or there won't be any more guys that come after me. So um, I don't know. But it's good to be with you. I see some of our CFBC, a few of our folks, a couple of just stand up. These are some of my dear sisters, daughters in the faith that have come over to be with us. Wonderful. Praise the Lord for their support. So what I'm going to do this morning is uh, uh, we want to talk about the holiness of God. Um, And so I'm going to invite you to take a Bible and open up to a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I trust that you do. Would you uh, turn there to Isaiah chapter 6? And although this passage is very familiar to many of us, I trust that it is not so familiar to you that um, you can't glean some fresh and uh, new insights from the passage that it can't still thrill and um, uh, excite your heart as we look at God's Word together. So Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read the passage in our hearing this morning, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin our time together. And uh, if you are there, say amen. Amen. This is God's Word. Let us hear him this morning. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we have sung your praises together, what a wonderful time we have enjoyed in singing of your holiness and singing of your provision, singing of your mercy and singing of your grace. And we come now to the point of our time together when we desire to hear from you. So, Lord, would you gird up the loins of our minds and grant us the grace to think your thoughts after you that we might together hear from you through your spirit and your word. Uh, Remove any and all distractions from us, Lord God, and seal your word to our hearts that we might be blessed as we hear, as we rejoice, as we obey. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, confessedly, I just want to share a little idiosyncrasy of myself as we begin our time uh, together. Some of you, maybe a couple of you might be able to relate to this. one of my idiosyncrasies is, is that I, I, I like looking at designer license plates. Any other strange person here this morning that likes to do that as well? Two of you, there was one in the early service and three of us here. So I, I like it. I like it so much that it could be a problem for me because I'll follow after a car if it's, <laughs> if it's one of those cryptic ones until I can actually figure out what it says. And, there have been at least one or two occasions where I've actually missed my off-ramp because I was trying to figure it out. But there was one that I saw not too long ago that caught my attention and affected me uh, as I read it, as I contemplated, and as I thought about it. It, it said, hi, H-I, and now you can put symbols on your license plates, and so it had a hand with uh, five fingers. It said, hi, five, and then it said, God. And so you get it, right? Hi, Five, God. Pretty clever. And I thought to myself initially that that is pretty clever, but then as I pondered a little bit more, it kind of made me sad. It disturbed me just a little bit. Not to judge the person whose license plate, I'm, that, that person's not here this morning, are you? Okay, so, all right. Somebody just got up and walked out, right? So, and not to judge the person, I'm sure they meant well. But as I thought about it and contemplated, I thought to myself, out of all of the things that I might want to communicate about God, all of the things that I might say I want to do to God if I were in the presence of God, of all of the things that I could think of to put on a license plate, probably the last thing would be high five God. And you just think about that, right? High-five God. We high-five one another. We high-five our friends. We do those kind of things. But, but probably the last thing that we would want to do if we ever found ourselves in the presence of God would be to high-five him. And just maybe, just maybe that license plate is indicative of a greater problem in kind of contemporary evangelicalism. And that problem is, is that we have lost the sense of the majesty and transcendence and glory and holiness of God. In essence, I think that we have maybe shrunk God down to the extent that he is more like us, that we have a low view of God now, and it affects us in ways that we can scarcely imagine. 
in, in thinking along these lines, years ago, 55 years ago, A.W. Tozer, some of you have read his books, and The Knowledge of the Holy. If you've never read it, I would commend it to you. It's a wonderful book. But he was lamenting a similar concern in his generation, and he penned this in that book. He wrote, quote, this condition has existed in the church for some years and is steadily getting worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. He goes on to write, this low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Now, that was written 55 years ago, and I think most of us have a sneaky suspicion that things have not gotten better, but maybe even worse. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I think that the contemporary evangelical church, we, 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 we know God, we love God, and we're, we're comfortable acknowledging the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, but sometimes we're a little uncomfortable talking about and reflecting on and meditating on the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the jealousy of God. Those kinds of things make us a little uncomfortable. And as a result of that, we have a skewed perception and vision of who God is. And when you are skewed in your perception and vision of God, you are skewed in how you will relate to God and then how you will walk out and obey God in mission. And so what I want to do with us in our time together this morning is in this familiar passage, just walk through this vision that Isaiah had, and my hopes is that we might be reacquainted with the God of the Bible, reacquainted with all of his splendor and majesty and transcendent glory, that it might grip us afresh so that, in fact, we might be on point in mission as we go out into this world. And so what I want to do then as we look at this passage, I want, to, I want to give us three realities. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Three realities of Isaiah's vision that will help us recapture a better and deeper appreciation for God's holiness. Let me tell you what those three realities are, and then we'll talk about them. I want us to think about the sight of the holiness of God. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll look at the sound of the holiness of God. That's verses 3 through 5. And then we'll look at verses 6 and 7 as the satisfaction of the holiness of God. So the sight, the sound, and the satisfaction of the holiness of God. Now, just by way of context, it's in the first verse. Isaiah tells us, if your Bibles are still open, look there with me. He says there as he writes, verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, you might know this, that King Uzziah was the king of Judah. The, the nation had been split, and, 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 and Israel, the northern kingdom, had gone uh, just the way of sin. But, but Judah and the southern kingdom was doing well. They were faithful to Yahweh, serving Yahweh. And one of the best kings that they had was King Uzziah. He took the throne at the age of 16 and reigned in the land for 52 years. And through his reign, God brought many reforms and many blessings to Judah. He was a wonderful king. 
Some of you guys might know this. If you don't know this, I would commend to you reading 2 Chronicles chapter 26 when you get at home. At the end of his life, he went a little astray, though. He got puffed up with pride. Some of you guys know the story. He went into the temple, and he took the prerogative of the priest unto himself, and as a result, God cursed him and gave him leprosy. And at the end of his life, he lived in the house as a leper, and he died. And his life kind of mirrors, as it were, uh, Judah in a sense. Judah was doing well, but at the tail end of uh, King Uzziah's life, Judah began to slip as well. They began to, to, to lose, as it were, the perspective of who, God's, who God was, and they began to be more influenced by the culture and the nations and the climates around them than they were by the word and the authority and the glory of God. As a matter of fact, if your Bibles are still open, let me just give us a flavor of that. Turn back over just into chapter 5 and look at verse 18. This gives us just a little snapshot of how things began to go in Judah. We read there in verse 18, woe to those, and this is the prophet speaking to those in Judah, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. That's how bad things have, had gotten at the end of Uzziah's life. And, and Uzziah, again, was a good king, and he died. And you can imagine how Isaiah must have felt. Isaiah must be feeling like, oh, it's all over right now. The, the only hope that we had to kind of bring things together as a nation, he's now dead. He's probably depressed, a little despondent, a little discouraged. And so he goes into the temple wondering if there is, in fact, any hope. And may I suggest that some of us might be feeling the same way. And when we look at our kind of political um, situation, that we might be feeling the same way, that, that we're a little discouraged, we're a little depressed, and we, we're wondering what, what in the world is going on. We, we might be panicking, as it were, that, that maybe the same way that, that Isaiah is doing. But my encouragement to you this morning is that God knows what he's doing. He, he knows what he's doing here in the text, and he knows what he's doing in our life. I think what God is doing here in his providence is he is showing Isaiah that his hope, that his encouragement doesn't come from any earthly king, but it comes from the king of glory. That he is stripping Isaiah and the nation from what they had put their confidence in, namely a human king. And he's going to remind Isaiah that our hope and our confidence comes from the heavenly king. Is that not a message that we need to hear this morning? Uh, Christians are, are kind of quaking and shaking and wondering, is this all over? When we look at our choices and things like that, but I think God wants us to know that, you know what, in his providence, maybe, just maybe, what he's doing in America is he is stripping away all of the confidence that we have put in human rulers so that we might return to the ruler, namely God himself. 
And that's what exactly Isaiah is doing. He is going into the temple, and he is going into the temple not knowing that God is going to manifest himself in this glorious way. And I think that's exactly what God wants to do with his people, the church here in America to reveal himself afresh, not just as the God of love, not just as the God of mercy, not just as the God of love, but also the the God of transcendent majesty and holiness and wrath and righteousness so that we might see that our confidence is in the one who reigns supreme. And so with that in mind, as Isaiah enters into the temple, let's think about those three realities. The first one is, let's look at the sight of the holiness of God. Look at verse 1, and let's see what Isaiah saw. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Stop right there. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord with the eyes of faith. We don't know if he's still in the the earthly temple or if God transported him up into the heavenly temple. Whatever happened, God is condescending to reveal himself afresh to Isaiah. Now keep in mind, friends, that Isaiah, this is not Isaiah's conversion story. Isaiah is already a follower of Yahweh. He is already a prophet, but God is taking him deeper into the knowledge of himself that he might be more useful to God. Always remember that, friends, that that whether you've been walking with the Lord for two years or two months or 20 years or 50 years, there is still yet a greater knowledge that God wants to give to you of himself that you might be more useful to him as you go out into the world. And Isaiah is getting prepared for a deeper level of ministry, and God wants him to see him, and he does. He saw the Lord, and in your Bibles, it's probably capital L, lowercase o-r-d, which alerts us in our English Bibles that the Hebrew word behind that is the word Adonai. And that is the word that um, refers to the transcendence, the supremacy, and the sovereignty of God. It is simply this, that Isaiah, uh, God removed the earthly king so that Isaiah can see the heavenly king. That this king that Isaiah now sees is the king. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And we need to see him as well. And so Isaiah's eyes are on him and the text says that he was sitting on a throne. And this is no ordinary throne. It's not an ordinary throne like there was in Jerusalem. This throne, the text says, as it qualifies the throne, it was lofty and exalted. If you still have a King James Version, it's high and lifted up is this throne. It is the throne that is above all other thrones. And because it's the throne all over, uh, above all other thrones, it means that it is the king who sits on that throne who is above all other kings. What Isaiah sees, who Isaiah sees, is no ordinary king. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, the Bible in several places tells us that man cannot see God. So what in fact, or who in fact, is Isaiah seeing here? Well, for your homework, you got to go back and read 2 Chronicles 26, but I encourage you to go back and also read John chapter 12. And what John chapter 12 encourages us is to know that who Isaiah saw was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. 
That's what John says in John chapter 12. He says that what Isaiah saw was the glory of Jesus Christ. So this one who is sitting on the throne is none other than Christ himself, the Lord of glory, and his throne is high. In preparation for this, I, it just struck me this a high and lofty throne, and I was trying to think through uh, if there's any kind of comparisons that, that we have in America, because we don't typically have thrones in America. We don't have a king and a queen. But as close as I came, it's just the, the Supreme Court. How many of you guys have ever seen the Supreme Court on television, right? And one of the things that you'll notice on the Supreme Court is that their seats are what? are high. And so when the, when the lawyers come, they stand at the bottom and they look up. And, they, and what they're trying to communicate is something of the majesty of the court, something that the court is above you and the court has the right to adjudicate and to rule over whatever matters you put before them. It's a way of symbolizing authority. Now multiply that by a gazillion. And that's this throne. That is communicating that the one that sits on it has the right and the authority of the place to adjudicate all matters. He is the king and he is the judge. And Isaiah sees him. Notice what else he sees if you're still looking at the text. It says, with the train of his robe filling the temple that the temple was, was full of the tip of his robe, not just his robe, but the train of his robe. And you ladies, we men know nothing about trains. All of you ladies are like, yes, right? And you think about the train that's attached to a wedding ground, and you do. It's the backside of it, right? It communicates something. It isn't the front side of the gown. It isn't even the main part of the gown. It is the backside of the gown, right? And you guys remember this. Uh, remember uh, Princess Diana when she got married? Some of you guys uh, played hooky from work and you stayed at home to watch it. And she's walking, I think it was in Westminster Abbey, and she's walking, and the train of her dress just filled the place, and people were in awe with it. Multiply that by a gazillion. And we have the one who is sitting on the throne in a royal regal robe, and the tips of that robe. Feel the temple. It's speaking something of the eminence of God. Even though he is supreme, he is sovereign, he is transcendent, he is yet still eminent as well. And Isaiah sees him. Isaiah knows that although in the human realm, and we need to know this as well, that the turnover of earthly rulers is 100%. But there is one ruler that will never turn over. He has reigned, he is reigning, and he will continue to reign. Amen? We don't get to vote on him. He can never be recalled. He doesn't have a campaign. He is the king, whether you like it or not. And we need to see him this morning. But not only that, notice what else he sees in verse 2. It just keeps getting better and more extraordinary. 
this unparalleled majesty and unrivaled glory. It's attendant in all of this regal nature, and we introduce in verse 2 that these interesting creatures, the seraphim, and in this passage, this is the only place in the Bible where we find these creatures. We don't know very much about them, only that they are creatures, and it seems as though they were created by God for one and one and only purpose, and that is to attend to the holiness of God. We, we glean from their name, seraphim, that there are multitude. We don't know how many. And we also glean that there's something about the, the burning ones or the shining ones. And that's all we know. And Isaiah tells us that they have six wings or, or three pairs of wings. And with two, they flew. But with two, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. Now, think about this. These grand, majestic, glorious beings that stand over and above the throne to worship God and attend to the Holy One who sits on the throne, they are so struck that they themselves cover their faces. They don't run up to God and give Him a high five. They are without sin. They are sinless creatures created by God to attend to his holiness. And they are so struck with the glory of God that they actually cover their faces in his presence. And they cover their feet. Maybe that speaks to the creatureliness of, of who they are. We, we, we know that from the Bible that very oftentimes when people came into God's presence, they took off their sandals because they were standing on holy ground. There was something of humility communicated by covering one's feet. And these grand and glorious creatures are covering themselves, their faces and their feet. Because why? Because they're in the presence of a holy God. When was the last time something like this happened to you? When was the last time that either in your private prayer closet or maybe you're in your car and, and, and you're worshiping God or maybe when you have come in to corporate worship, you've been so struck by the exalted, coronated, crowned Christ reigning on the throne that you just covered your face? That there was just something that was uneasy about being in the presence of an holy God that just caused you just to be a little bit uncomfortable. That's where Isaiah is. And we see that he moves from seeing the holiness of God to hearing the holiness of God. Look back at your Bibles in verse 3. That's what it says. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a picture, eh? What a picture. You have these great grand beings, the seraphim, and this idea is the antiphonal kind of back and forth response. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy to God. Now, this is the only place when it comes to a descriptive that is, that is in Scripture that is describing God that is elevated to the superlative of the third degree. In other words, three words describing God, this is the only place where you find it, and it is the word holy. In one place in Revelation, and it is holy as well. In other words, we never find in Scripture a place where God is referred to as love, love, love. 
or mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. It wouldn't mean that God isn't love, he isn't mercy, he isn't grace, but there is something unique about God's holiness that here we see it mentioned three times, which in Hebrew is a way of putting something to the superlative degree. It's a, it's a, it's a way of emphasizing something that you can't miss it. And when we speak of the holiness of God, we're talking about something that is uncommon to man. The word itself means to cut, kadosh, it means to cut away. Um, in our, in our kind of contemporary vernacular, we use the phrase, a cut above something else, to say that something in comparison to the rest is above. That's the idea here. In both supreme majesty in the essence of who God is and in moral purity, he is a cut above everything else. That's what it means that God is holy. And I want you to see this. Let's just turn to one place in in Scripture. Could you turn uh, back into Psalm, Psalm uh, 99 with me for a moment? Psalm 99. The psalmist writes, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Literally, holy is it. The name of God himself is, in fact, holy. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Drop down to verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. And what theologians understand is that holiness is not just simply another attribute of God, but it is the very essence of all of the divine attributes put together. It is a way of saying God is God. It is the foundation of his being. If there's one word that describes God, it is the word holy. And it gives us an understanding of all of the rest of his attributes. For instance, it teaches us that his love is a holy love. It teaches us that his grace is a holy grace. It teaches us that his compassion is a holy compassion, that his wrath is a holy wrath, that his jealousy is a holy jealousy. All of the other attributes of God are so other and different than ours that all you can say about them is that they are, in fact, holy. So small wonder then that when Isaiah hears the sound in the temple that they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The word there should be in capitals in your Bible, and he uses the sacred name of God, is Yahweh of hosts. He names him here. So we have the title of Adonai, and we have Yahweh together to make no mistake that who Isaiah sees is God. And he says there at the end of verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, as Isaiah hears this and sees this, he recognizes that God has not left one inch of the universe without a testimony to himself. 
that we can go out of these doors and no matter where we go, there is something screaming and communicating about God. Our existence, brothers and sisters and friends, is about God. We exist for God. He does not exist for us. Amen? When we come together to worship, it is about us joining all of creation in the fullness of the glory of God and magnifying him for who he is. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Now I want you to notice next the effects of the sound of the holiness of God. Notice what begins to happen here. Look again at your Bible. In verse 4, Isaiah records, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Can you just imagine for a moment or two, some of us have experienced this. We live in earthquake, you know, territory. But could you imagine us sitting here and we were standing up maybe singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. And all of a sudden the, the building began to shake right? The doors fell off of their hinges. Smoke began to fill the room. We'd probably run, right? To duck for cover, right? Because we would recognize that something tremendous is happening here. And that's exactly where Isaiah finds himself. That at the very sounds of the voice of the seraphim saying, holy, 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 the very foundations of the temple itself began to crumble and shake and disintegrate. It speaks something of the majesty of God, does it not? But, 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 but that's not even really what should gain our attention. What should gain our attention is not the effect of the sound of the holiness on the building, but the effect of the sound of the holiness on the prophet. Look at verse 5. Then Isaiah said, woe is me. I, I, I like to do this. When I read my Bible, I like to try to use my sanctified imagination and wonder how he actually said it. How do you think he said it? Oh, woe is me. Right? Like, I, I love to get this thing over with so I can get out of here. No. Maybe woe is me. And whenever you read in your Bible and you come across a woe, woe is not a good thing. Woe in your Bible, those three little letters, is always a bad thing. Woe means a curse. And what Isaiah is doing here, he is pronouncing a curse on himself. He says, for I am ruined. I think the King James says, for I am undone. I am disintegrating. I am coming. I am becoming unraveled at the seams, as it were. Everything within him, having encountered this experience with God and all of his splendor and majesty, is just disrupting him at the very core of his being. He definitely is not about to high-five God. And neither should we. Have you been here lately? Have you encountered the holiness of God such that you have felt yourself unraveling in his presence? Or is that just something old for Jonathan Edwards' 
day when he used to preach fire and brimstone and sinners in the hand of an angry God. And we read in our uh, college English classes how people back in New England would fall down and they would be thriving and writhing on the floor because of the holiness of God was so thick and heavy on them. Maybe that was just for a time past. And we have become more sophisticated to realize that God doesn't do that to people anymore. He did it to Isaiah, did he not? And this is the interesting point. Isaiah says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a a people of unclean lips. And please understand, as I said before, Isaiah, relatively speaking, is a righteous man. This isn't his conversion. He's been following Yahweh for years. But he recognizes his his own sin, and there's something, brothers and sisters, about seeing the holiness and majesty of God where we see ourselves for who we really are. How many of you guys, you ladies and even you men, have woken up in the morning and it's still just kind of uh, daylight, the daylight is just breaking in and you grab a white dress or you grab a white shirt and you put it on and you look at it and it's like, oh man, crisp and clean, right? And you're looking good and then you go outside and when you see your shirt in in the midst of the sun, you realize that, uh uh-oh, not so clean. It is not as though the color of your shirt changed. But you are now seeing your shirt in comparison to the crispness and the light of the sun. And you recognize then that your shirt was not quite as clean as you thought it was. That's what's happening to Isaiah. It isn't that he's changed, but he's seeing himself in comparison to the splendor and majesty of God. And he says, oh, man. I'm undone. And I love the order of this. Don't you love the order of this? That he, perf- he pronounces the curse on himself and he admits his own sins before he begins to talk about the sins of others. So oftentimes it's just the opposite with us, is it not? That we so easily and readily can see the sins of others before we see the sins of ourselves. Isaiah says, no, it's me. The problem is me. I have the sin. And, and the lips here may be as he confesses because he's a prophet and, and God is going to touch his mouth and he's going to have a greater ministry with his lips. Or maybe the intention here is that his lips or his mouth are indicative of what's in his heart. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as you confess sinful lips, you are confessing that you have a sinful heart, that you are sinful to the very core of your being. And Isaiah is saying exactly that. I am a sinner. It is amazing, is it not, that when people encounter God in all of his glory, this is what happens to them. In Judges, you know the story of Samson's father and mother, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah. And they see an angel of the Lord who reveals himself and says that his name is wonderful. And and Manoah, anybody read the story? Manoah goes home to his wife, hey, honey, you know, kick the dog, sell the house, it's over. That's not what he actually said. He said, we are going to die. The text reads, for our eyes have seen God. 
John had a similar experience, and we know John, John the Apostle, who was Jesus' best friend, uh, over and over he says that he was the one whom Jesus loved, whose, whose, whose head would lean on Jesus' uh, breast, as it were. But when John encounters him in Revelation chapter 1, it's not the same Jesus, meek and mild. It is the risen, coronated, crowned Christ of Revelation chapter 1. And there the text says, when John saw him, he fell at his feet as a dead man. That's who Isaiah sees. And that's who we need to see. The sight of the holiness of God. The sound of the holiness of God. And lastly, the satisfaction of the holiness of God. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if the text stopped right there? It would be really bad, right? Because we would, we would leave Isaiah just standing there, just naked before the holiness of God, undone with a curse upon himself. And if he were just left right there, that would just be horrible. But thanks be to God, that story doesn't end there. Because God's holiness demands satisfaction. It is because of God's holiness that he must punish sin. If he does not, then he is not holy. He is not God. And the beauty of verses 6 and 7 is is that God himself satisfies the demands of his own holiness. And there, silenced and undone, Isaiah not being able to enter into the chorus of these angels and praise God, and yet God moves in mercy and in grace to take care of his greatest problem. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which had been taken from the altar with tongues. And the altar is the place of atonement. The altar is the place of sacrifice. And there's a coal taken by one of the seraphim in verse 7. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is a good place for you to say amen. This is good news, loved ones, that Isaiah isn't left in his sin. He's not left in his guilt. God has taken the initiative in sovereign grace to satisfy his own holiness so that Isaiah, in turn, might be satisfied in his holiness. And it is no small wonder then that this is the prophet who has experienced this great act of mercy who writes the most clearly of the coming king, Jesus Christ, namely in Isaiah chapter 53. It makes sense then, having experienced this, that he knew that that is nothing inherent in the coal that was brought there, but God would later provide an atonement for the sins of all of his people. And isn't it even, uh, even more extraordinary that the one who would be the provision for God's people is the very one who is sitting on the throne at this point, namely Jesus Christ, who came into the world and lived the perfect life that we could never live on our own and who died a substitutionary, atoning death on the cross In my place he stood. 
bearing all of God's justice, bearing all of God's wrath, bearing all of God's indignation, bearing all of God's anger that was due you and that was due me because of our sins, God the Father poured it all out on Jesus, his eternal and beloved Son. Not because Jesus had done anything wrong, but because of our sins. He, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's good news. So that as we now stand in the presence of a holy God, we don't have to pronounce a curse on ourselves. Because according to the Bible, Jesus became a curse in our place. And we can, as Isaiah could, as you read the rest of the narrative, we can now join our voices with the seraphim and we can cry out without fear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We can now be satisfied in his holiness. We can talk about his holiness. We can, we can glory in his holiness. We can exult in his holiness. We can and praise his holiness because he has atoned for our sins and made us fit to be in his presence for now and forevermore. And we can, loved ones, have our confidence where it needs to be, not in any earthly king. Come what might come in November, brothers and sisters. Our God reigns. Our God reigns, and, and it doesn't matter who will sit on the little throne in Washington, D.C. It won't matter. His, uh, his abilities, his powers are not affected one iota. He will do what he wants to do, when he wants to do, with whom he wants to do, no matter who is reigning here on earth, because Christ reigns. And he means for his church to see him as he is so that we might be more useful to him as we go on to this world. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you for this brief but deep vision of who you are in all of your splendor, in all of your majesty, in all of your holiness. Help us, Lord God, to reflect and meditate upon these truths, upon what we have seen and what we have heard, and then, Lord God, cause us to be satisfied in it, or more importantly, in you, that we might be more useful to you in this world. We thank you, we bless you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.